Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Chris Trofolino. I'm the editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, Rich. How are things? Hopefully not too taxing. <laughs> Things are thinging right now, Tom, uh, and one thing that we need to get to right away, not just uh, uh, 1040, uh, but also a little something we to call news or not. It's really the 1040 easy of IT news, uh, where we don't have time for a full discussion on this, but I want to get Tom's take on some stuff, and we need to talk about it right now. So first up, we need to get into Rackspace. Uh, turns out, Tom, you know what's, uh, you know what's fun? Going public. Mm-hmm. So why not no. do it twice? <laughs> <laughs> the managed cloud services company Rackspace thinks so, and it's filing for its second IPO. The company went public in 2008, taken private by Apollo Global Management, an equity firm in 2016, and is now filed to go public again, aiming for about a $10 billion valuation, at least according to Reuters. Rackspace has been contemplating an IPO for two years, um, but basically they had a ton of debt and not a ton of growth, and we're like, Nah, it doesn't seem right. Uh, but it looks like now with a work from home exodus, uh, the IPO may be worth their while here. News or not, Tom? This is not really news. Uh, I, companies IPOing are basically like pay me. Uh, the fact that Rackspace did it twice tells me that whoever bailed them out wants to get paid. <laughs> so I'm really curious to see if they're going to do this seesaw of public private public private thing i don't think this is going to be as successful as their first one the equity is kind of gone yeah i mean they're certainly striking while the uh the market is hot for what they are offering um so you know maybe if they can use that uh capitalize do some more investment um so that they're in a better position post pandemic maybe but uh, we will see uh, next up here, uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that SoftBank is exploring the possibility of a full or partial sale or an IPO of Arm, which it bought four years ago for nearly $32 billion. Last week, Arm announced it plans to spin off its two IoT businesses to SoftBank and focus its efforts on semiconductor IP business. Uh, Tom, seems like SoftBank kind of getting their financial house in order after some rough investments. News or not? This is absolutely about anything other than arm uh, <laughs> this is the time to sell no this is the time to sell arm because now that apple's going to be making arm max everybody's in, engaged and invested in the company and softbank needs the cash because we work so they're getting out while they can this this has some, nothing to do with arm this has everything to do with softbank being strapped for cash all right, next up here, uh, interesting acquisition news. The semiconductor maker Analog Devices announced it intends to acquire its rival, Maxim Integrated, in a deal worth $21 billion. Analog Devices is a maker of sensors and signal processors across transportation, healthcare, and consumer electronics, and will add Maxim's healthcare and military products that are more focused on security and energy efficiency uh, than Analog Devices' portfolio. The deal is expected to close in the summer of 2021. The chip market consolidating. Uh, more on the component side here, Tom. News or not? I think this is news. Anytime you buy your biggest competitor, that's news. Uh, the thing that I wonder, though, is, is this a sound financial investment or is this a gamble because the whole market's kind of doing one of these things? Um, I don't necessarily know that it's going to do like 
like all the way down like a cliff face. But if you have enough available capital to buy your biggest investor and you think that's the only way to go forward, I'm sorry, not investor competitor, and you think that that's the pathway forward, that means we're in for some crunch. Yeah, it, it you know, I mean, analog devices, I mean, you have to be in, in some kind of position to make this move, you know, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you can't be in the worst possible position, but yeah, it, it kind of has a, a foggy forecast, I guess, going forward for the overall market in terms of, I guess, um, scale solves everything? Ask Facebook. <laughs> Next up here, last week, NVIDIA surpassed Intel as the most valuable U.S. chip maker for the first time. A record stock price put NVIDIA's market cap at $248 billion, ahead of Intel's meager $246 billion. In 2020, Intel's stock is down about 3%, while NVIDIA's is up 68% from the start of the year. This also comes, uh, just for some context, also um, uh, both IDC and... Um, Oh, now I can't think of the other analyst name, but the two major analysts both said that the PC market is actually kind of doing an upshift. So you would think you would see Intel stock maybe reflecting that. So Tom, news or not, NVIDIA surpassing that market cap. Um, my standard reminder here, thanks to the folks over, uh, I believe it's Reddit or possibly even TikTok. Um, the stock market is a graph of rich people's feelings about companies. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so here's what that took. Um, that took... Everybody being super excited about NVIDIA because they've been buying everybody into the sun. And the fact that Intel's just been taken to the woodshed for the last, what, I don't know, year and a half over some of the lot of the decisions they were making, including the fact that that Apple basically blacked their eye with this whole ARM Mac thing. And that's what it took to in-seat Intel. This isn't news. This is like when Apple was the first trillion dollar company and then ExxonMobil stock price jumped 8% <laughs> because all the ExxonMobil <laughs> stock company people were pissed off that that apple was more valuable than them like like i don't care there's no real value in your stock valuation because that's other people's opinion of what you're doing make your stuff make your money prove to me you're valuable i don't care what jim kramer thinks about you yeah it is interesting in all the write-ups i saw of this everyone's very quick to qualify that like intel still makes way more money than nvidia yeah. right now all the revenue is like you know, like a not an order of magnitude, but it is significantly higher than what NVIDIA is doing. Obviously, the you know baked into the stock market is expectations of future performance and that kind of stuff. It, it gets again, it's it's all eye of newt uh, uh, alchemy after a certain point when it gets to the stock market. But an interesting little tidbit. Appreciate your take on it, Tom. Next up here, we talked about last week that uh, Zoom was launching uh, some hardware partnerships with some uh, telecom equipment providers, and we've see, we're now seeing the first result of those partnerships. Uh, the Zoom for Home D10Me, catchy name, I guess, offers a 27-inch screen with three wide-angle cameras designed for high-resolution video and eight microphones. Count them, eight microphones. Zoom software is preloaded on the device, and it can pair right out of the box with a QR code from a laptop or a phone. So you can just kind of scan that thing and get going. Uh, no additional setup required, although it's only runs Zoom, so I don't know what else you could do to screw that up. It also uses ultrasonic pairing to connect from a laptop to a phone. They made it clear that this is not Bluetooth. This is like a weird ultrasonic thing. I don't know why that's very interesting to me. Uh, the D10Me costs $599 and requires an existing Zoom licenses. CEOs everywhere getting uh, <laughs> dedicated Zoom terminals. News are not here, Tom. 
this is so for those of you who don't know the short version is is that the guy who founded zoom used to work for webex and then they got bought by cisco and then he got mad at the way it was being run and so he dropped off and started doing his own thing and then covid so this is him creating the webex desktop uh cisco calls and they've been under a bunch of different names the personal telepresence units the one i used to have on my desk was the dx80 um great in theory like if you, you if you do so much video conferencing in a day that a dedicated hardware appliance with built with built-in cameras, built-in webcam, everything just running Zoom would offload stuff from your work, bravo. I mean, I don't see my wife or my mom going out and drop six hundred dollars on this to video chat with the kids because hey, these things exist. FaceTime <laughs> is a thing. Um, that, I mean, I could maybe see that for a company that was like, like 24 seven zoom stuff, but that, that would be about it. I, I could see this also having an appeal. You know, we, we've heard a lot of talk of, um, you know, people kind of surprised, I guess, that, uh, how people are adopting to kind of having to be, have to create their own little content creator studios now that everybody's working from home. And some people have really kind of embraced that and been like, Oh man, I got all these cool cameras. And like, I've, I've, I've maximized with whatever budget I have, I've maximized the result I can get. Other people are like, here's my dirty bed. And you know, I'm going to show up and you know, you just, I'm, I'm not going to even like throw the kids clothes off the couch or something like that. I feel like this has some appeal of this is professionalism in a box. You can unwrap this, scan your phone, you're set up, you have multiple camera angles, you're going to sound really good. You don't have to worry about futzing with XLR cables and stuff like that. So I do think there is some value in that, in the, at least in this environment as well. Mm -hmm. Next yep, up, that's exactly where I was coming from, too. Next up here, Verizon announced uh, updates to its BlueJeans live streaming capabilities, now enabling BlueJeans events to support up to 150 speakers and 50,000 attendees, kind of going uh, for that uh, real hot virtual event market. That's turns out all events now. Other updates uh, include free live closed captioning, a search feature to find attendees, and application sharing in Chrome. This is the second major update now since Verizon acquired BlueJeans in April. Uh, they had previously added better encryption support. Uh, news or not, Tom, that uh, Verizon being aggressive with the BlueJeans updates. BlueJeans is still a thing. That's news. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. It, I'm just, I, I'm cynical on this because you are, well, <laughs> do I even need to say it at this point? You're like a certain other fourth place cloud provider. I mean, you are climbing against a very steep hill with a treadmill on it like remember american gladiators when they had to start at the beginning where they had to run up a treadmill this is basically what blue jeans is doing except the treadmill is four billion dollars long and at the top zoom and webex are giving people double birds it's like <laughs> you're not getting up there guys but sorry i i will say this to me clarifies the strategy with blue jeans uh particularly kind of going very heavy very fast with this virtual event stuff clearly they were working on this i would think before the acquisition now turns out they also own the network provider that they're on and maybe can do some service level guarantees might have some interesting capabilities also net neutrality is dead uh and finally here uh speaking of things that are dead the uk government announced huawei's networking equipment will be phased out of its 5g networks starting in january 2021 telecom operators won't be allowed to buy new 5g equipment from huawei and will have seven years to remove its existing technology from their 5g infrastructure the government previously announced in january that huawei's equipment would be allowed in the country's 5g infrastructure with certain limitations limited to 35 percent of overall capacity and outside of any core networks um so that's kind of where it is deployed currently tom news or not 
I don't know. Like, I, I, I want this to be news. I, I really do. But I also want anybody who's listening in on this call to not like, you know, destroy my life. <laughs> Here's the thing. This is news simply because this is now a political, this is taking a technology solution, making it a political problem. This is not the first time we're going to see the this happen. In fact, this is not the first time we've seen this happen. And it's definitely not going to be the end of it. I just don't know how deeply I want to dive into this because we are getting very close to the edge of, you know, dealing with crap when this kind of comes out and people are like, uh, how, how are we, how are we going to keep people out? Cause it, I mean, it's not like an uh, enterprise networking gear where you, you can go to Juniper, Cisco, um, Nokia, Aruba. There are only like five companies in the world that make this stuff. And you just ban 20% of the market because you have di disagreements with their political apparatus. Yeah. Good luck like guys. I was just also reading this week some interesting stuff that uh, some of the decisions that Nokia made, unsurprisingly, Nokia making uh, maybe perhaps not the best design decisions. Uh, effectively, <laughs> the, the way they're implementing a lot of their 5G equipment uh, is more based around performance, but it makes them extremely uncost competitive. Um, if I have the link to that, I'll put that in the show notes with the story as well. So it kind of, you know, if you are on a budget, um, which, you know, I think most places at some point are. Uh, you know, Nokia is not all is definitely not going to be the cheapest one on the market either, um, making it harder. You know, I, I guess if you don't have a choice, uh, it makes it an easier sell. Uh, but yeah. the reason why Huawei was able to get that uh, position is because they were they were cost competitive. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up here for our first kind of bigger discussion story, uh, big news of the week, certainly in the networking space, uh, was HPE announced it intended to acquire the SD-WAN company Silverpeak in a deal worth $925 million. HPE says it will combine the company with its existing Aruba business, integrating the SD-WAN assets into Aruba's recently launched Edge Services platform. This feels like the last big independent SD-WAN startup to get acquired, selling for just under the combined deals of the Tela and VeloCloud. Uh, admittedly, those are from 2017. Tom, can you break down how you see this acquisition working out for HTP? And by the way, when did Aruba stop being a wireless company? <laughs> Aruba stopped being a wireless company when HPE basically gave them all of their networking divisions. <laughs> so, yeah, I was literally having this conversation with some people this morning because Aruba is presenting at Cloud Field Day 8 right now. But Aruba has, has assumed all of the networking division of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So Aruba is lock, stock, and barrel. If it moves bits for HPE, Aruba owns it. Um. This is very interesting. As you mentioned, in, in my mind, I would consider this to be the last major SD-WAN provider, the independents, that has gone out. I mean, Viptela Velo, CloudGenix, and now Silverpeak. I mean, there are still a few that are floating around. Versa Networks has a really strong partnership with Riverbed. Um, uh, really, there there aren't very many left. A lot of the other ones that are left, uh, most people would probably point out Ariaka and say, well, they're enormous. But Ariaka is not an SD-WAN company. They're a SD-WAN as a service company. Um, and I know a couple of people who work over there. But, uh, you know, uh, so I, I think that ultimately they're going to go down a different road. Um, they, they aren't selling SD-WAN. Uh, Big props to David Hughes for getting his payout. I mean, we've had them at several events in the past, several networking field day events. Um, so we understand the technology. And this is a good fit for, for HPE. Biggest question is going to be what happens to Aruba's SD branch play. Because SD, Aruba was very specific. We are not doing SD-WAN. We're doing SD branch. And it's built on ClearPass. And this is how it's going to work. 
is this a repudiation of how that's working? Is this more augmentation to look more like what Talari and VeloCloud are doing? We're enabling cloud and data center SD-WAN. I don't know yet. I mean, this news is two days old at this point. So we're, we're going to see a lot of integration going on before we get to that point. But this is a good win all, all over. This is not one of those situations where I feel like uh, you know, HPE overpaid or Silver Peak had to sell. I feel like this was a good talent and technology acquisition. Yeah, this definitely also, I mean, one, I think HPE very intentionally made this very clear that this is Aruba's thing now. They're going to handle all this because they've been very successful, I think, in, uh, and I, I mean, I don't think, I, I mean, I think this is the general consensus. They've been very successful kind of integrating that in their business, letting them do what they do best. Um, and and reaping the benefits of that across their entire stack. It also really fits in well with HP's kind of in general, like, hey, we're going to do everything as a service now. Um, you know, uh, you know, we don't we don't need your your capex anymore. Ha ha ha. Um, and at some point, this, I mean, ultimately, when I, when I hear Edge, I'm just imagining the more things they can say, hey, unplug this, start up the software, and things just magically work when you're expanding the Edge, puts them in a in a better position. And I I feel like. Uh, you know, wh whether you want to say this repudiates, uh, you know, they're not doing SD-WAN or whatnot. I, I think HP realizes that most organizations don't care. Like they just care about, does this make my operations easier? Does it make it easier to expand? Does this make it easier to keep things configured and safe? And I don't have, I have to do less, you know, kind of micromanaging of that. Um, I, ultimately, I think that's, you know, whether they say it's SD-WAN, SD-EDGE, um, I, I think that's where their their customers care about. And certainly this puts them in a better position for that. Yeah. All right, we got a lot of uh, Google news further in this discussion. Some GCP stuff. Tom, I know your favorite uh, public cloud provider. Uh, so we're going to get it started right here. At their Cloud Next 20 virtual event, Google announced a private alpha launch of BigQuery Omni. This is powered by GCP's Anthos a hybrid cloud platform and lets customers use the BigQuery engine to analyze data that sits in multiple clouds. AWS is supported now with Azure support coming soon. It should be noted that uh, Anthos support for Azure itself is just in beta, so not surprising to see it not launch immediately. Analysis will be done locally, so you won't have to move data between the clouds, kind of uh, uh, looking out for that uh, that whole data gravity thing. If GCP can win out, if, if GCP can't win outright, I guess this is my question to you um, in terms of the public cloud race. Is this kind of multi-cloud services approach their way to stay relevant going forward? Yep. If you can't be number one or number two, become an arms dealer to both of them and you can quickly <laughs> win. Um, this kind of works with the GCP model of building applications. Like like, like enterprises move Azure AWS, like lock, stock, and barrel. People don't move to GCP. They build things on GCP. They, they move pieces there. So this is just saying, okay, well, if the infrastructure lives in AWS and Azure, but this application got built on GCP because it was cheap or we needed AI, ML or something like that, being able to query into those other two clouds or query across clouds is a huge win for them because now that means that you don't have to have somebody writing a connector to do that for you. It's just a native service that you can charge for. Yeah, well, and and you know, to your question, Tom, um, your question always with GC, anything with GCP related is, well, one, how does Google monetize it? I mean, yeah. the path the path to monetize this is fairly obvious, but you know, how does this play into? How does Google's cloud ambitions, I guess, play to their strengths? And clearly, um, you know, like BigQuery was already selling GCP to to a certain extent, 
and the ability to kind of extend that that service and that IP across clouds certainly um, uh, obviously a smart move. Now, I will be curious. Uh, obviously, it's in everyone's interest. Uh, everyone's going to have a multi. You know, if they don't already have this capability, I would imagine. So it, Google obviously is uh, uh, counting on the fact that this is their area of expertise, and they can. If they're the best at it, people will still move to them if that is of value. So uh, uh, some interesting stuff, definitely, for sure. Yeah. Next up here, um, two new cloud products from Google coming out in its confidential computing portfolio. They're part of the Confidential Computing Consortium. These are specifically GCP-related stuff. Uh, confidential VMs and assured workloads for government. I think the, the first one is clearly the one that Google is focusing on, so let's break it down. These are built on structural changes to GCP's platform for the security needs of... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading the long wrong line there. Totally off. <laughs> let's break down confidential VMs. It's currently in beta and offers memory encryption to keep workloads isolated in addition to GCP's standard data encryption at rest and a transit that they have across all of their VMs uh, with minimal performance impact. They're using secure encrypted uh, virtualization supported by second generation AMD Epic CPU. So they're very specific that that partnership's in place and users don't have to recompile workloads or anything like that to take advantage of encryption. It's just a checkbox in GCP. Google expects to eventually make confidential VMs default on the service, kind of what they did uh, with their uh, shielded VMs uh, that they did a, a little while ago. Meanwhile, assured workloads for government enables compliance professionals to more easily create controlled environments where U.S. data location and personal access controls are automatically enforced. Basically, it keeps you, in, if you're a government agency or in healthcare or anything like that, uh, this is just pre-certified. You don't have to kind of worry about it. All the compliance issues are kind of taken care of. Uh, but confidential VMs, Tom, I'm surprised we have not seen um, more, I guess, more effort on this, given the the kind of emphasis we've seen on security and and, uh, uh, and privacy um, in the industry in general. So Google's now telling me that things have to be hidden from even the cloud providers. Boy, <laughs> I wonder what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I like the idea. And the the fact that this has to run on AMD Epic means that there's probably some kind of crypto offload that's going on on those multi-core CPUs that allows them to be able to do this hitless at line rate. Props to Google for kind of putting this out there as saying, hey, we're offering this as a service now because, well, one, we're going to get paid. But two, this is a thing that we had never seen before. But I kind of feel like it's when, you know, like when the when the CIA comes up and goes, man, you really should consider locking your doors with the P-58 lock. And then they just walk away. And you're like, first of all, why is the CIA telling me to lock my doors? And second, why are they saying I really need to use this very specific lock? Oh, crap. So this like opens up all new can of worms. What the hell are cloud providers doing that I need to like <laughs> run these things in encrypted in memory hidden from everything else i think this is liability protection specifically for highly secure customers and then later for everybody when the next horrific side channel attack hits what you know cpu architecture x and theoretically opens up a whole big can of words like going whoa 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 everything like literally even if you get access to this it means nothing you can't do anything with it uh everything is encrypted in all the places uh, and so like the, the most cynical interpretation of that is we know that this architecture is going to be flawed at some point. So we are going to hedge against that in every way we can. Yeah. What are we going to call the next version of meltdown Chernobyl? Uh, it's going to be, um, uh, it's going to be, uh, uh, a nightmare hellscape, uh, electric boogaloo. Uh, I think that'll be, that'll be the one we're going to go with. <laughs> uh, and finally here, uh, this is, is not, I guess a, a, 
official Google announcement. It's a project that they're working on, but it might have uh, some wider implications than even the other two things that we were talking about. Uh, Google open source an enterprise vulnerability scanner called Tsunami, designed to operate at extremely large scales with millions of internet-connected devices. Tsunami comes with two components, a reconnaissance module that scans networks for open ports, then tests them to see what protocols and services are running on them. A second component takes that list of ports and services, runs uh, benign vulnerabilities, not vulnerabilities that are benign, but not meant to like actually breach anything against them to look for weak points. This module supports plugins so organizations can add new attack vectors and vulnerabilities to test over time. The interesting part here is that Tsunami will not be a Google branded product and will be maintained by the open source community, very similar to what they did with Kubernetes. So Tom, uh, my question is, uh, obviously this is not a, a, I guess a revolutionary or as, um, potentially uh, unprecedented, not even unprecedented. Kubernetes was operating in a pretty green field, right? When it came out, extremely complicated, but hey, containers were new. Scanning for vulnerabilities is not new, but in operating in this way, designed for scale, designed so that people can build it out to test whatever they want to do it, could this Tsunami project eventually see that same kind of ubiquity in the enterprise? No. And I'll give you two reasons why. Uh, Tenable Nessus and Rapid7. Uh, they are the big dogs in this market. And here's here in a nutshell is why this is going to be a really hard climb. If Google had bought this and put all of their weight behind it and said, we're going to build definitions for it, we're going to optimize a scanning engine, we're going to do all of these things, I would totally be behind them unseating one or even possibly both of the big dogs in this industry. But they didn't. They're basically acting like, I don't know, like a shepherd where it's like, hey, we will protect you or give you resources, but you're on your own. So that <laughs> means they're still requiring the community and the in the, the the people who are buying into this to do good work. Now, before you, you guys blame me in the comments, I am a huge believer in open source. I believe it is the way that we're going to be developing things in the future. Here's my problem. Um, you cannot throw money at an open source project and expect things to magically happen. You have to have people who are committed, people who are capable, and people who want to see this succeed. Tenable and Rapid7 get around this by paying people to do this. We're going to write things. We're going to do things. We're going to be involved and invested in the project. Why then would I develop a module for Tsunami that, let's be fair, Five years from now, somebody's going to use this code. They're going to fork it. They're going to build their own commercial vulnerability scanner on top of it with some value adds, and they're going to offer it. And so then my hard work building the, I don't know, webcam detection module in Tsunami, now somebody else is getting paid for it, take my ball and go home. Um, that's one of the things you got to watch out for in open source. So well, and, and I, and I, I don't, don't know, know what that license. Gonna... I don't also don't know what license this is under. So it, I, I, you know, if it's under like the GPL or whatever like that, there is less of a concern with that. I know, depending on the license terms, though, mm -hmm. you are at you, you have more opportunity to to do exactly what you're saying there, Tom. And Google has not exactly been mm -hmm. consistent with how they license their open source projects either. Yeah. So it will it will be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I mean the other the other alternative to that is then there are you know managed tsunami providers you know kind of like in the 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 Kubernetes cottage industry, uh, aka giant industry, <laughs> that is managed Kubernetes. Um, yeah, the the I, I am interested in the potential of this. The the skeptical side of me also says that. Google did the the all the maths and they had a machine algorithm tell them that hey we can invest 
a couple billion dollars and we still won't take over this market. So why don't we open source the work on this and maybe something happens with it? Question mark, you know, step three profit. Um, but uh, that, you know, if, if you know, like you said, if Google was serious about, or not necessarily serious about this, bullish about this, that it would be a Google branded product that uh, they would operate in a similar way to its competitors. All right. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. I can't believe we got there, Tom, but we are here. Uh, please tell the fine people where they can find your more of your great stuff if they are so inclined. Well, that's easy. Go to gestaltit.com. Uh, I've been riding up a storm. I have uh, produced a lot of Tom Versations recently. I've been doing some event coverage, some exclusive posts. As a matter of fact, uh, we just posted a Tom Versation last week about end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, happy to say that I have not been arrested by the U.S. federal government yet but the, the week is still young. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I'm going to have some <laughs> coverage of, <laughs> excuse me, some briefings that I've been taking coming up soon. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're prepping for some more great events. We've got Cloud Field Day 8 going on this week. Uh, Mobility Field Day 5 is coming up in just a couple of weeks. So uh, probably going to be seeing some more coverage from those events coming up very soon. Yeah, uh, if you want to uh, head on over there uh, right now, I think uh, uh, we're just finishing up with uh, Igneous at Cloudfield Day 8, and uh, HashiCorp is coming up uh, at 2 o'clock uh, Pacific, or I'm sorry, excuse me, <laughs> 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's what the P stands for. Uh, and so uh, you can check that out, techfieldday.com as well. You can find my stuff uh, also on gestaltit.com, or uh, check out Checksum every Monday on the Gestalt IT YouTube channel, youtube.com slash video to find that every week. Um, until the next time we meet, Tom, for myself, for you, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs> <laughs>